This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Geopolitical tensions seem to spike last night on news that Iran fired missiles at air bases jointly used by the U.S. and Iraq in retaliation for the killing of Qasem Soleimani. Uh, we saw financial markets initially uh, get upset and sell off. Uh, and uh, we should point out that, of course, there was no casualties. President Trump coming out today promising additional sanctions on Iran did say, though, that Tehran appears to be refraining from additional attacks. So let's take a look at the market and the geopolitical implications. Peter Cheer back with us, head of macro strategy at Academy Securities. He joins us on the phone from Connecticut. Also with us, retired U.S. Army Lieutenant General Frank Kearney, uh, or is it Kearney? Forgive me. Uh, Academy Securities Advisory Board member on the phone from Montana. Uh, General, thank you so much. Peter, thank you so much for being with us. General, did I get your last name correct? Yeah, that's just fine. No, what's correct? Oh, Kearney. Kearney. Okay, I just want to make sure we had it right. I do want to start with you, if I may, because we kicked off our broadcast and I talked how the market is behaving as if events in the Middle East are yesterday's news. Are they right? Is the world in general right to look as though the Middle East, you know, and what has happened really in the last six days, um, not such a big deal or like it almost never happened? Well, I think that that would probably be the wrong take from from what has occurred over the past uh, few days here. And just because the two nations have um, responded in a way that seems more behaviorally uh, natural uh, in that situation, we shouldn't take from that that this is over or that uh, danger isn't still at a pretty high level for, uh, for a misery. Peter, come on in here because obviously we've been watching, as we know you have, the markets very closely. It's been a tale of a market that certainly is taking its cues from the geopolitical situation, specifically in Iran. What is the market reading and interpreting right now? You know, I think the market got too negative, thinking this was instantly leading to an escalation. And our view has been that there will not be an immediate escalation, that you know, we sh- did what we needed to do, that will put some fear into Iran. They responded, but very kind of lightly, not to say that they might not respond more, not that things couldn't deteriorate, but I think we'll move back to the status quo a little bit. So that's going to let markets, I think, you know, calm down. Right now, I think we're in the middle of a relief rally because so many hedges got put on. I think that we're going to experience some weakness coming into the month, but it's going to have less to do with the geopolitical side of things than just back to the normal economic twos and fro's and the Fed. General, I do want to ask you about something that's been talked about and, and reported pretty extensively over the past couple of days, which is this disagreement, apparently, or, or at least not being on the same page between the White House and the Pentagon. Talk to me, talk to us about that situation and and how you read it, you know, having been right in the middle of this? You know, the president is a unique um, leader. He makes decisions in a way that I think uh, is a different style that the Pentagon has been used to, but we've been with him for three years now. And I think think people really do believe that Soleimani was a legitimate target on the military side. I'm not sure that uh, I'm aware of the intelligence, or anybody's really aware of the intelligence uh, that has driven uh, the predicate to make this occur. 
But he's a legitimate target. I think there was probably unity of effort uh, in, in that regard. What do you make, though, General, of the Pentagon analysis that it seemed like the missiles were aimed at parts of the bases unlikely to result in casualty? This is according to folks in the know. It almost had this feeling that, like, this last week has almost been planned out. I'm just, of course, speculating. But it just had this odd feeling that it was like, okay, everybody has now saved face and we can move on. How do you see it, though, knowing your experience, your, you know, time on the battlefield and and so on? I think that the uh, the targeting of Soleimani was an unexpected event by Iran. Uh, and while they have to save face and they have to do things, uh, the response was predictable but I don't think they really want to get in a large-scale uh, war with the United States, which wouldn't be a land war. It would be air and naval missile, uh, at which they are nowhere near as strong as we are. So I think their response was set up to be able to ameliorate the situation and get back to it, – it's a higher status quo uh, than Peter described. I think we're at a higher tension level mm-hmm. and we'll stay there for some time. So, Peter, uh, last word to you. And I guess my question is, we had always talked about geopolitics being a a potential uh, drag on this market. You know, it was always out there. Now it's here. And I wonder whether you think geopolitics now are here to stay at a much higher level on the worry scale as we go through 2020. I think geopolitics are much uh, are here in a much higher level and are going to move markets. But I also think they have the potential to be two-sided. So we could get this escalation. We might also start seeing some, you know, effort on RAN to, you know, appease us and the economic sanctions. You know, one of our generals has mentioned maybe North Korea backs down. Maybe they even try and open themselves up to the West a little bit. So I think we've switched how we're behaving. We're using economic power as our first leverage. Now we're backing with force. I think the surprise might be that geopolitics actually leads to some very good outcomes for the global economy. And that would be, I think, a big surprise for a lot of people. Right. But you can see that path developing. Got it. Peter, thank you so much. Peter Cheer, head of macro strategy over at Academy Securities, with us from Connecticut. Retired U.S. Army Lieutenant General Frank Kearney. He's, of course, Academy Securities Advisory Board member. He joined us on the phone from Montana. All right, so Carol, we've talked a lot about Opportunity Zones ever since it became a part of the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and it's meant to spur investment in some underinvested communities. Let's get into the big questions with one investor who has identified this as a big, dare I say it, opportunity, (laughs) Nick Parrish, Managing Director of Crescent Partners. He joins us on the phone from Chicago. Nick, great to have you with us. So remind us... uh, what is an opportunity zone? Hi, Jason. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So um, just to refresh, opportunity zones were part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And the idea was to take and align the, the current market situation, which is, you know, 10 plus years into a bull market, a lot of pent up capital gains on American balance sheets, trying to create a program that would free up some of those capital gains and incentivize people to take those off, uh, off the table and to redirect those into areas that have been identified by the government as either economically underserved or underdeveloped. So this is a program that's meant to spur investment in some of these areas around the country, urban and rural, 
that the government designated as uh, as underserved. So, Nick, t- talk to us a little bit about you know your firm's experience so far with involved being involved in opportunity zones. I know you guys have a specific fund, and you guys have been out there uh, front and center with this. Tell us how it's going. What kind of projects are you investing in? What kind of results are you seeing? Yeah, no, I think um, you know. Listen, we. We identified this opportunity early on. I think for us, this represented a great opportunity to, um, you know, for, for us, shelter our own gains, uh, redeploy this capital in a way that aligns with our investment philosophy, which is around owning long-term, high-quality assets. Um, and, you know, we were very early movers to the space, and I think that's an important point. A question that, that we're often asked is, you know, what's actually happening here? Obviously, a lot of talk about it, but how much is is actually happening here, and I, you know, I think we were a, a early mover here, right? Um, and 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 we've had, you know, we've had a lot of success there. We've um, been fortunate in that we were able to organize and, and arrange capital and identify opportunities that exist in in great markets, you know, with partners that we'd we'd like to otherwise partner uh, partner with, um, and have seen great opportunities. So we've, you know, we've deployed over four hundred million dollars in, in seven different markets around the country. But I think it's early days. I think that's the important point. We remind people this is this is a ten year program. We're, you know, a little over fifteen months into the uh, into the program, and so this is still very much early days for for opportunity zones. And so, Nick, let's talk about some of those investments because you know one of the questions obviously has been, you know, what does it look like on the ground? Are we talking about housing? Are we talking about retail? Are we talking about more commercial? And in the cases where you've been investing, do you feel like it is into areas that otherwise would not see this sort of investment? Or is it, you know, sort of a, a nice way to do something you're already going to do? Yeah, I think, you know, just, just taking a big step back. I mean, the program was designed to accommodate both real estate and private businesses. What we found out of the gates was, was one, from a regulatory standpoint, the, regula- the regulations were ambiguous uh, with regard to how to own and operate private businesses within opportunity zones. I think the, some of those have been clarified, um, but still it's not easy to fit a private business opportunity into these zones. So largely the opportunity, at least initially, has um, steered toward real estate, and in particular real estate development, um, given some of the components of of the regulations and and how capital has to be deployed. So it's primarily real estate development. I think, again, going back to this idea that this is a a 10-year horizon, I think you know, like any opportunity, um, capital is going to flow first and initially to those opportunities that offer the greatest return, you know, the lowest amount of risk and, and fit within the program. So naturally, some of these opportunities have been more in core urban markets, probably closer to developed areas than others. And I think that's a natural path of progression here is, you know, the, the expectation that immediately out of the gates, people would commit private capital to some of the most underserved communities in America was maybe not realistic. But if a path can be be created from here to that area where the next developer is willing to go one step further and further, you're creating a path to progress that we think will ultimately, over the life of this program, create 
you know, the impact that people are expecting. Well, good to check in with you, and, and uh, hopefully you'll come back soon and talk a little bit more about some of the specific investments, because I know there is some concern, Jason, uh, that investments in opportunity zones, there's no requirements that they show that they benefit the community. So right. I think there's a lot of questions out there about the good that it's doing or these areas that would have been, you know, turning anyway and investors would have gone there anyway. And I just think so much about the, the tax affordable breaks. housing question. Correct. We talked about with Noah Buhayer yesterday what's happening on the West Coast, you know, is this a potential solution and what does it actually look like and are those dollars actually going to those sorts of investments? This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. It's not very difficult to come to conclusion you're going to die in Japan or you're going to have to get out. This was not about justice. This was, as I felt, I was a hostage of a country that I have served for 17 years. And then that, of course, was Carlos Ghosn, the former head of Nissan and Renault. He held a lengthy and detailed press conference and Q&A with reporters in Beirut this morning, uh, U.S. time. Uh, let's get into it because at that press conference in Beirut was Bloomberg News senior reporter Matthew Campbell. He joins us uh, on the phone. It's, I think, almost 10 o'clock at night there. So, Matt, thanks so much for staying up for us. First of all, uh, we were riveted. Jason talked about sitting in his car just listening to it. I had it downloaded so I could, you know, listen to it on my way to the train and through my train ride. Set the scene for us. What was it like being in that room? Well, Carol, it was, uh, as you can imagine, a a bit of a zoo. Uh, Quite a lot of reporters jostling to get in. Uh, There were many more on the street outside who hadn't been let in. Uh, This is the first time that uh, Ghosn had appeared publicly, to speak publicly, uh, since his arrest. And this is a, a guy who when he was at the top of Nissan and Renault for, for 20 years, was really never far from a microphone. So he was clearly uh, ready, had a lot bottled up, ready to get off his chest. And so, Matt, knowing the story as well as you do, you and the team have done some phenomenal reporting there. What jumped out at you? What did you walk out of there thinking, oh, wow, I didn't expect that either in tone or in substance? Well, in in terms of the tone, Jason, I think I I was a bit surprised by uh, how digressive a lot of it was. It was not uh, perhaps the most organized uh, appearance. There was clearly a lot that uh, Ghosn wanted to cover, which is understandable. Uh, But if you hadn't followed this uh, very closely, and and I I have, but most people haven't, uh, you could have really lost track of what was going on. So I I don't know if it was the most effective format for him to deliver his message. But uh, if his goal was to get back out there and get back into the news, he certainly has done that. Yeah, no doubt about it. But it was, it involved a screen behind him, right, and PowerPoint or slides and so on. I do wonder, too, Matt, if it answered some questions or really, you know, created a whole new round of questions. I think, Carol, it did answer some questions. Uh, We got from Gone uh, the names of some of the people he feels are behind uh, what he characterizes as a plot against him, uh, an effort to uh, end his, his tenure at Nissan to prevent uh, some of the plans he had for that company. Uh, we got uh, some interesting statements from him about why he came to Lebanon, uh, about what he sees going forward as, as a possible route to clearing his name and addressing these allegations. So there, were, there was some incremental news, but what we didn't have was a smoking gun or any, any truly dramatic revelation. You know, it was interesting, Matt, listening to it. And again, I didn't listen to it nearly as closely as you did there in the room. But it was notable how much 
he seemed to essentially say, look how poorly this company has done since I've been gone. And that tells you all you need to know about how important I was and maybe why they set me up in this way. Felt like he was looking for shareholder pressure here a little bit. Yes, certainly. And, and I think uh, he'll probably find some shareholder pressure. There's no question uh, Nissan and to some extent Renault uh, have been in a really tough spot uh, over the last year. I mean, how much of that is, is due to Gohn's absence versus uh, being due to just general headwinds in the industry, I think is, is quite debatable. But look, Gohn portrayed himself for a long time as the indispensable man, the person without whom neither of these companies could succeed. And uh, he, he would argue that, that his absence is proving his case. So now what? Like, I, I just wonder what's going to happen next uh, in this story, um, you know, in terms of the legality of it. Um, I know I think Japan wants to get him back in the country. So I don't know, Matt, you know this story inside and out like no other. So what happens next? Well, he is uh, now in Lebanon. He is a citizen of Lebanon. And, and as a matter of policy, Lebanon does not extradite citizens. Uh, so he is safe here, uh, at least as far as anyone knows. Uh, there is some talk uh, that he sort of sidestepped today, uh, but that I think we will see resurface that he could be tried in Lebanon or that he wants to be tried in Lebanon, because uh, I think, you know, life as a fugitive is not what he's looking for. He wants to clear his name, mm-hmm. but he wants to do it in a, in a country where he deems uh, the trial fair. Uh, so that could be Lebanon, or, or I suppose it could be elsewhere. But that that's going to be a big question in the next few weeks. And obviously, there weren't a lot of details about how he got out. He he really uh, avoided that in many ways. He avoided talking about the Lebanese government uh, right uh, close to the top of the conversation as well. But what has your reporting shown so far that you can share with us in terms of what the escape and how he did it may mean for where this goes next? Well, uh, Jason, we do now know uh, certainly the basic outlines, and and in some cases more than the basic outlines, of how he got out of Japan uh, on a private jet from Osaka Airport, uh, apparently concealed in a large box. Uh, So what what is amazing about this is is just the sheer audacity, (laughs) and that uh, Gone undertook a very risky course of action that uh, had it gone wrong in any of its many particulars, could have landed him right back in jail. So I think that that does tell you uh, about just how determined he was to get out of Japan uh, and uh, how, how much he feared or, or, or found unacceptable the notion of going into a trial there. There's a story on the Bloomberg, um, and I think it was from our team maybe out of, um, or actually Isabel Reynolds that talked about how Go nearly crossed paths with the Japan uh, Japanese prime minister as he was leaving Amazing. the country. I mean, it's like just crazy when you get think about it. And Matt, I, I have to ask you, you know, you're talking to a lot of people, executives who, who know him, I would imagine. Do people believe him? I, I mean, what what's the sense of out there now? Has the public opinion shifted at all or are people essentially where they were before the escape? I think it's it's pretty hard to know what to make of these allegations yeah. against him. They are uh, particularly uh, two of them, uh, the, the allegations of understating his compensation. They are fairly subtle uh, and hard to parse. Uh, and so it, it really is, it, it, there's no elevator pitch to describe these allegations. It is complicated. So it is hard for people who aren't uh, really read up on it to make sense of. 
Um, I think there is probably some sympathy for him, if, if not uh, due to you know, necessarily people being convinced he's innocent, but, but more just the way he's been treated. Right. Uh, I think, you know, being barred from seeing or communicating with one's wife uh, for a period of, of seven, eight months would be uh, pretty trying on anyone, and that does engender some sympathy. Right. Well, fantastic reporting. We're so fortunate to have you there on the ground in Lebanon. Matthew Campbell, senior reporter for Bloomberg, joining us from Beirut. What a day there. And as he described it, as we watched it, it's riveting. It's riveting. And I think just when we feel like we get a perspective or an opinion or thoughts on this story, then all of a sudden something happens that maybe shifts it a little bit. And that's what I felt like we got today. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Every once in a while, a story comes along that just sticks with you. It makes you mad, you keep thinking about it, then it makes you mad all over again. And it's owing to some really dogged and terrific investigative reporting, understanding an issue that is so important to so many people. It's about the Catholic Church sex abuse scandal, but a story you have never read before. It's about the financials of it and the church's activities here in the United States. and speaks about, speaks to some of the moves that the church has made to shield its assets. Josh Saul wrote the story. He is a distressed debt reporter for Bloomberg. He joins us on the phone from New York. Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Josh, first of all, I have to say congratulations on this story. It's not a story anyone wants to read for so many reasons, and yet I I was blown away. So thank you for writing it, and tell us what you found. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Um, and what I found when I started uh, digging into court filings uh, early last early last year um, and talking to people is that uh, dioceses across the U.S. Um, prepare for bankruptcy um, by uh, shifting assets, um, transferring assets to parishes that could be you know churches, parish parking lots, bank accounts, um, and also um, setting up tr- setting up trusts um, to hold large to hold large amounts of money. Um, and the effect is that when they then face large amounts of sex abuse lawsuits, that be you know clergy abuse lawsuits filed by victims of um, of, of, of priests, um, the, the church can say, oh well, we have you know say we have fifty million dollars in assets. Um, all that other money, all that other money that you might think of as church assets, um, as church money, that's actually owned by the parishes, or that's that's in a separate Wells Fargo account that's not actually available for victim settlements. So the effect is that. Um, people who finally have the courage to come forward and say, um, you know, I was attacked as a child, I, I want to file a lawsuit against the church, the church files for bankruptcy, and those people end up with much smaller settlements and amounts of money um, than they would than they would if the church kept all its money in one pot. Josh, uh, Joel here, uh, amazing story. I think the other thing about this is, like, there's an element of news here, which, you know, you, a lot of your reporting was centered in New Mexico, which is sort of an ongoing uh, discussion between the church and victims. But this has actually been a strategy that for the church has actually worked pretty effectively. Where else has it been uh, sort of used, this tactic? Well, one one example would be in in St. Paul, Minneapolis, which is is a big, big archdiocese, a lot of uh, of Catholics in Minnesota— um, and when they filed for when they filed for bankruptcy, um, they said they had you know a very small very small amount of money, um, and victims' lawyers um, began to point out things like, well, hey, you've you valued the cathedral, you know, the most one of the most kind of historic and theoretically valuable 
buildings in the state at one dollar. And like, wait a second, all of the cemeteries, you say that you don't own the cemeteries. And, and by the way, someone's gone around um, and painted over the cemetery sign. So instead of it just saying Green Lawn Cemetery, instead of, it's, instead of the sign saying Green Lawn Cemetery, Archdiocese of St. Paul, Minneapolis, now it just says Green Lawn Cemetery. You know, and the victim's lawyers even showed photos, like before and after photos. And it was just part of a, you know, a massive, um, a ma- you know, kind of a massive effort to, to say, well, we don't, you know, this money um, is, belongs to our parishes or this money belongs in a separate trust, um, that, but it doesn't. That, the part that I, I think you, you've said it so perfectly here, which is like there's the, the, the basic, uh, you know, in we talk about bankruptcies a lot in business, right? And the fact that the church is like latched on to how to protect assets to shield right. them effectively. Uh, it's sort of an incredible part of how I think this story will continue to go forward. Right. The part that's obviously the most upsetting is the victim part because it takes the, the emotional effort that it has to take to actually come forward in this and actually tell your story might actually run up against the statute of limitations that bankruptcy presents. Right, Josh? What, what's the emotional side of the story from the vo- victims that you talk to? Yeah, it was, it was difficult talking to people because they're saying like, you know, I grew up in, you know, I grew up in, I grew up going to, you know, going to Sunday school and being told, you know, being told not to lie. And then the church, you know, files for bankruptcy. And all of a sudden, you know, the abuse that I suffered, I'm going to be able to get a lot less to pay for the therapy I, I need. And people told me, you know, I don't understand. The church tries, you know, taught me not to lie, but now they're lying about their assets. Why are they doing that? Um, so it was definitely difficult. Right. Well, I highly recommend people read this story in part because there are a lot of nuances here. It's emotional, especially for someone like me who is Catholic to see all this. And I think one of the really important things to understand is who was ultimately implicated in all of this and well, the people and the who ro- made the decisions. Right. The role of the Vatican. And I think that's something we didn't get time to dig into, but I highly recommend because there's so many details in the story that are about that as well. well Jason, as a Catholic, what stuck out to you? I think what role the senior leaders in the church, including the current Cardinal of New York City, uh, Timothy Dolan, uh, back uh, in his previous posting that he played in all of this. So it's a must read. Uh, On a much lighter and happier note, uh, Josh Saul, thank you for this. But congratulations on your new son, who I believe arrived uh, yesterday. That is fantastic news for you and your family. Yeah, Harrison Saul. He's a trying to learn how to breastfeed right now and okay there you go and um, get back to paternity leave (laughs) thank you josh (laughs) we're very grateful to you and congratulations again uh and congratulations on this story it's it's really terrific uh and important i'm driving in my car i turn on the radio how about you let me drive oh no 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 who's gonna drive you home honey please i'll do the driving drive home excuse me i want to drive just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. 
All right, it is time for the drive to the close on this green day. A much more upbeat trade today across all the major indices. Alan Zaffron back with us, founding partner and co-CEO of IEQ Capital. He joins us on the phone from Foster City, California. So, Alan, what a couple days it's been watching the markets and really geopolitics, obviously the driver here, at least that's what it feels like. Agree, disagree? And, and what do you make of the, the current state of things? Jason, uh, absolutely geopolitics have driven the last few days. But um, as you well know, that's sort of noise. And absent uh, a really protracted um, you know, geopolitical event, you've got to focus again on fundamentals. And the fundamentals are a modestly improving global economy, low interest rates that are here to stay, moderate economic growth. And when I can make the same yield and dividends on the S&P 500 that I get on a 10-year treasury, and I still get all the potential growth that stocks bring me, stocks still like a, look like a pretty good deal relative to cash and bonds. So I think improving economic conditions, a Fed that's on hold, uh, it's going to take a lot to stop this market from continuing to grind higher despite all the negative headlines out there. We have a guest coming up a little bit later on uh, on our show, Alan, and basically asking the question, you know, looking at what's ahead for 2020 and might it be the end of monetary magic, you know, where we've had so many uh, central banks around the world keeping rates so low that has pushed people into riskier assets. How do you see it? I think that's true. I think it has pushed people into riskier assets. Does it continue in 2020 then? Because it feels like it. I think it does. And I think it does because equities are um, all things equal the most attractive risk adjusted choice of what you can do in the public markets. A 2% 10 year treasury ain't going to cut it. And uh, retirees have a trouble living off something like that. And so. In the event there's enough confidence with consumers to keep spending and therefore the economies keep chugging along, earnings grow. And, you know, even if multiples don't go up, Carol, yeah. uh, if I just make my rate of earnings growth and my dividend, let's call that on average anywhere from 7 to 8% per year, that's a lot more than a, a 2% treasury yield. So It's all relative, right? Really, <laughs> yeah. It's... it's um, and it's really hard. You know, the other thing is, anecdotally, uh, it appears as if individuals have not thrown in the towel and all jumped into equities yet. So there's an argument, multiples from here could, it, believe it or not, go up and expand in the next several years. And that would not be out of the domain of crazy. The spread between getting a 5% earnings yield when I'm paying 20 times earnings and a 2% treasury, that 3% difference is a lot wider than what history would tell you. And one way to get there is pay 25 times earnings, and it's only a 4% yield, but it's still a lot more than bonds. So right. that's the bullish argument. Right. And Alan, I want to take a little bit of a turn here and ask you about how things are around you. You're there in Silicon Valley. You spend, you spend a lot of time there. Uh, I'm guessing you hobnob with a lot of folks, uh, influential folks out there. And, you know, having been in California over the holidays, I was reminded that the world does look differently when or looks different when, when you're out there versus when you're in New York. And maybe it's the weather, maybe it's all the technology, maybe it's something else. But how does the world feel and, and what does the world worry about? What do folks around you talk about that may not be the everyday sort of trade geopolitical type concerns? You know, artificial intelligence, big data, um, 
I got to tell you, you want to talk about a place that makes lemonade out of lemons? Mm. Uh, we have this Iran-U.S. Uh, debacle, and the first thing I hear about is Iran's going to come back to us with a cyber attack. Right. Oh, what a great idea. Let's look at all these cybersecurity companies we're, we're creating out here. That is a growing um, area of great significance. And we've seen that now in the public markets, obviously, with a handful of names. But there are a lot of private companies that are you know, really it's focused on this stuff. It's so interesting so, you bring that up because somebody just tweeted uh, to both Carol and me, a, a listener, saying, talk more about cybersecurity yeah. with tensions in the Middle East as well as the election in November. I'm sure protected computers will be a hot topic. Uh, but I wonder, uh, how is there enough investment going there? Are we going to see more uh, dollars uh, chasing? I think you're going to see more dollars chasing because when times are good, money will continue to chase. With our still admittedly highly speculative yeah. investments, it's not that the opportunity set isn't there, it's there. There's just a lot of companies tra- chasing and only a handful of them will end up winning. But there's, this is a, a place full of optimism and we have the ability time and again to, it's the Chinese uh, symbol for crisis and opportunity. Right. We look at it as opportunity. I got to tell you, my first job or one of my first jobs in business journalism was producing a mutual fund show and basically, you know, was looking at trends and where to invest in mutual funds. But when there was a tragedy, forgive me, but like it could be an earthquake or something, you know, we had investment professionals who were saying buy cement, buy, you know, building stocks and so on and so forth, because these are things that, you know, like it or not, or, you know, as cold as it may sound, those are the kind of companies that are going to be in demand in the future. And, you know, we are living in a world where there's so much data out there and it's all about cyber protection, Alan. It is. And I think you're going to continue to see a lot more on that area. And also all the intrusions that AI have on your personal data. How are we all going to protect our own lives? How are we going to curate information in a manner that we can trust when it comes back to us? There's a lot of layers behind this for many years to come. And so, Alan, are most of those opportunities in more the private capital sector versus the public equity markets? Yes, they, they really are. There's only a handful of ways in which to tackle them currently in the public markets. But that's, that's also the opportunity is if you end up in an environment where um, you, these companies start to come out, um, they will be buying some of the privates, but more importantly, I think over time, it'll become a more appreciated or institutionalized marketplace right. and allow for more of these companies to come out and be public as well. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, listen, we saw a deal uh, yesterday with Accenture mm-hmm. buying a piece of Broadcom, you know, a, a, essentially a cast off from the right. Symantec right. Uh, acquisition. Alan Zaffron, great to catch up with you. Founding partner, co-CEO at IEQ Capital. Joining us on the phone from the aforementioned Silicon Valley out in California. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.